Volume 1, Chapter 9, Part 1 of A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by Francois Pierre Guillaume Guizot. Chapter 9, Part 1. Kings and Barons, Henry the Third, 1216 to 1272. King John was buried when his young son was crowned at Gloucester on the 28th of October, 1216, by the Pope's legate. He was ten years of age at the time, and his feeble hands confirmed without resistance the gift which his father had made to Rome of the Kingdom of England. It was the vassal of the church, who in the month of November 1216 was confided to the care of the Earl of Pembroke, the most formidable of the barons who had remained faithful to King John, by reason of his orderly and prudent character, for he was as devoted to the liberties of his country as the barons who had mustered round the banner of Prince Louis. He was nominated protector of the kingdom and of the king, and his first care was to make a revision of Magna Carta. He eliminated the temporary articles, confirmed a great number of clauses. Others remained pending until the raising of a more numerous army, and the Earl directed all his efforts against the French prince and his foreign adherents. The favors and good graces of the protector drew to him all the barons who were deserting the French prince and they were becoming every day more numerous. Their enmity had died out at the death of King John. The child who had just been crowned was their legitimate sovereign, descended from the kings whom they had loved and served. Louis saw his army rapidly decreasing. In consequence of the vigorous resistance of Hubert de Burg, he had been unable to obtain possession of Dover Castle, which he had been besieging for some time. In vain they had endeavored to seduce him from his duty, by urging that the king to whom he had sworn allegiance was dead. The king has left children, he answered, and Louis raised the siege to return to London, which still remained true to him. An armistice soon allowed him to go to France to collect reinforcements, but in his absence the insolence of Ingerand of Soucy, whom he had left at the head of affairs, was spreading discontent and the forces of the national party sprang up so rapidly that the prince attacked on the sea by the sailors of the sink ports found some difficulty in returning to england an army corps under the command of the count of perchet was defeated by the protector in the very streets of lincoln and the anathemas of rome began to pour down upon prince louis and his adherents who were excommunicated in a mass louis was shut up in london surrounded by his enemies. He asked for help from France, but his father, Philippe Augustus, would not become concerned in a quarrel with the Pope, and did not dare to act openly in his son's favor. It was Louis's wife, Blanche of Castile, who succeeded in raising considerable forces, which she sent to him under the care of a chief of adventurers named Eustace the monk, because he had escaped from his monastery the french fleet met hubert de burgh on the high seas the struggle began eustace the monk was defeated and afterwards beheaded on the poop of his vessel 
Hubert de Burgh returned triumphantly to Dover with his prizes. The last check was the death blow of Louis's cause in England. On the 11th of September, 1217, a treaty of peace was signed at Lambeth, granting easy conditions to the French prince and a full pardon to his English adherents. The protector had no other desire than to put an end to the struggle and to see England delivered from the foreigners. In spite of its prolonged resistance, the city of London even obtained a confirmation of its privileges. Louis set sail in the middle of September, and his more distinguished partisans were kindly received at King Henry's court. Magna Carta was again confirmed, not, however, without some modifications favorable to the royal prerogative. The clauses relating to the protection of the forests were included in a special charter called the Forest Charter, which rendered less severe the Norman legislation as to hunting and the edicts which relate to it. The wisdom and moderation of Pembroke prevailed in the councils. The Queen Mother, Isabel, had fled from England in the midst of the confusion, and her first husband, the Count of Marche, had just been solemnly remarried to her. The legate remained with the young prince, and was instructed by the Pope to look after the interests of the vassal of the church as well as those of the suzerain mistress of England. Order seemed to have been re-established when the protector died, May 1219, and the power which was afterwards divided between Hubert de Burgh and Pierre de Rochers, Bishop of Winchester, became a bone of contention to the rivals and the barons attached to either party. Habits of insubordination, which had been developed during the long struggle against arbitrary power, had borne their fruit. England was rent asunder by internal quarrels, which it was not even hoped would end on the king's attaining his majority, for Henry III grew up without becoming a man. Absorbed in the love of luxury and pageantry, and the songs of minstrels and the masterpieces of the sculptors or of the artists with whom he loved to surround himself, he appeared to take no interest in his affairs, and displayed no warlike inclinations, but left the barons to quarrel among themselves, and the Italian priests to devour the substance of his kingdom, without manifesting any desire to find a remedy. France was suffering from the evils of a minority. Louis the Seventh, who had seceded Philippe Augustus in 1223, had reigned but a short time, and Louis the Ninth was not sixteen years of age when, in 1230, the King of England, who was of age two years before, made a raid on Brittany at the instigation of some noblemen of Normandy, Brittany, and Poitou. But Blanche of Castile possessed a more vigorous spirit and a stronger arm than King Henry III. She herself led her son to the war, and in spite of the turbulency of the French barons, who were always eager to shake off their yoke, she saw her efforts crowned with success. Several towns belonging to the King of England opened their gates to her, while King Henry was losing time and wasting his resources on fates and tournaments at Nantes. He started back for England in the month of October, deeply humiliated, leaving his ally, the Duke of Brittany, at the foot of the throne of Louis the Ninth, who granted him the pardon which he had humbly solicited, with a rope round his neck. The Parliament, this Norman name, was beginning to be used, which was convoked at Henry's return, refused to grant any subsidies, alleging that, thanks to the folly and imprudence of the king, his barons were no richer than himself. 
Hubert de Burg had for some years past triumphed over his rival, Pierre des Roches, who was obliged to retire into private life, but the ill success of the expedition to France had ended by causing a feeling against the minister among many of the nobility, who were jealous of his power. Pierre des Roches reappeared at the court, and soon afterwards formal accusations were made against Hubert, most of them frivolous, and attesting nothing but his fidelity to his king, whom he had served and defended during so many years. But Henry III was not in a position to protect his friend, and would scarcely recognize him. He was prejudiced against Hubert, who took refuge at Merton Abbey. The king had ordered that he should be arrested there, but the Archbishop of Dublin reminded him of the privilege of sanctuary, and obtained a passport which authorized the fallen minister to retire to his residence and prepare his defense. On the faith of this promise, Hubert de Burgh set out to meet his wife, the King of Scotland's sister, at Bury St. Edmunds, but he was attacked on the way by a band of armed men sent by the king. Hubert was in bed at the time, but fled half-naked into a parish church, and seizing in one hand the crucifix and in the other the host, he awaited his enemies upon the steps of the altar. He was dragged into the churchyard, and on the refusal of a blacksmith, who declared that he would rather die than chain down the defender of Dover Castle, was tied to a horse and conducted to the Tower of London. The violation of the consecrated spot, however, excited the public indignation to such a degree that the king found himself obliged to send his prisoner to Brentwood Church, which he caused to be surrounded by palings and trenches, thus compelling Hubert to give himself up voluntarily. Having been again imprisoned in the tower, the earl was deprived of all his property, and afterwards languished for one year in the castle of Devizes. He contrived to escape, and having been rescued by his friends at the very moment when his enemies were upon him, he regained a certain amount of power, but he no longer aspired to the dangerous position of prime minister, which his rival, Pierre Desroches, had lost in consequence of his maneuvers and excesses. Being satisfied with the recovery of his liberty and a portion of his property, Hubert left the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Edmund Rich, in undisturbed possession of the supreme authority. This prelate, like his predecessor, Stephen Langton, was a patriotic statesman, who contrived for the moment to conquer, by his good sense and wisdom, the aversion which the king manifested towards charters, and the restlessness of the barons, who were always inclined to maintain by force of arms the privileges which they had gained with so much difficulty. A fresh element of discord had sprung up between the king and his people. Henry had married in 1236 Eleanor of Provence, sister of Margaret, wife of Louis the Ninth, king of France. A large number of Gascons and Provençals had followed her to the court. The queen was accompanied by four uncles, young brothers of her mother, the Princess of Savoy. The king immediately conceived a firm friendship for them. The Bishop of Valence became prime minister. His brother Boniface was promoted to the Archbishopric of Canterbury, which Edmund Rich had abandoned, weary and disgusted, to retire into a monastery and the two other brothers were also provided for. Even this was not sufficient. The Queen Mother, now Countess of Marsh, sent to the court of England the four sons whom she had borne to Hugh de Luzon. 
and the wealth and honors which the king lavished on the brothers attracted towards them a large number of adventurers the king found himself without money all the ecclesiastical benefices were reserved for italians by virtue of the pope's authority over the country parliament always insisted on the departure of the strangers as a condition of granting subsidies but the king immediately on obtaining the money forgot his promises and even his oaths and his frivolous followers laughed at magna carta and the importance which the barons attached to it what are the english laws to us they would ask by these laws the king was compelled to ask his people for the means which he wasted so foolishly on feasts and extravagance each day the parliament became more reluctant to grant them the queen mother offended she said by the countess of Portois, sister-in-law of louis the ninth urged her son to declare war with france assuring him that the old vassals of his house were eager to gather round his standard the english barons refused the necessary subsidies saying that the truce agreed to between the two kingdoms still remained in force henry was not of a warlike disposition but his mother was importunate he raised some money and set sail for france with three hundred knights a certain number of malcontents soon joined him commanded by the by the count of march whom his wife sent to the war as she had already sent her son king louis the ninth had taken the field with forces superior to those of the english the two young monarchs met near the castle of talberg in Santon on the banks of the charente louis at the head of his forces attacked the bridge defended by the english troops and for a moment withstood almost unaided their united efforts his signal courage gained the day the bridge was taken the english were routed and the king of england escaped in company with his brother to whom he owed his safety the two brothers took refuge in sens a second battle was fought on the morrow under the walls of the town and the english were again defeated the count of marsh surrendered and king henry flying across santon embarked at blay leaving the decorations of his chapel and the money remaining in his coffers in the hands of his enemy it was to the moderation of king louis the ninth and to the scruples of his sensitive conscience that the english were indebted for a truce of five years the barons humiliated and disgraced although they had not been engaged in the quarrel with france claimed the right of nominating the chief justiciar the chancellor and several other officers of the crown the king refused and the parliament only allowed him what was strictly necessary on the occasion of the marriage of his eldest daughter to the king of scotland henry had conceived a hatred of parliaments in order to manage without them he had recourse to every expedient by which he could raise money he exacted enormous fines tortured the jews and begged presents of all his vassals god gave us this child but the king sold him to us said a wag at the birth of one of the princes henry even on one occasion sold a portion of the royal table plate he was advised to sell everything but the difficulty was to find buyers the citizens of london will buy anything cried the king bitterly by my faith the treasures of augustus were for sale the citizens would make the purchase these villains live like barons while we are in want of the principal necessaries of life the king detested the city of london but he levied as many taxes as possible upon its inhabitants instructing the persons of his household to obtain all the things necessary 
for his entertainments without paying for them and continually claiming gifts under the most frivolous pretexts from the citizens in twelve fifty three king henry had come to an end of all his resources and expedients he was compelled to convoke a parliament declaring that he was anxious to assume the cross and go and deliver the tomb of jesus christ from the hands of the infidels the barons had often seen this pious pretext made use of and were not to be deceived by it they were besides accustomed in private life to hear the same determination announced in order to set aside the most solemn obligations before making any grant they exacted a new and solemn ratification of their liberties on the third of may the king proceeded to westminster hall the barons were assembled there and all the bishops were standing with tapers in their hands they offered one to the king i am not a priest he said and refused it the archbishop of canterbury stepped forward and uttered the sentence of excommunication against all those who should either directly or indirectly violate the charters of the kingdom as he finished speaking all the prelates threw aside their tapers which were extinguished at their feet and the priest cried may the soul of him who may incur this sentence be extinguished in a like manner in hell the king uplifting his hand uttered this oath may god help me to preserve intact all these charters as i am a christian as i am a knight and as i am a king anointed and crowned scarcely had he received the subsidies when he started on an expedition to guion which was threatened by the intrigues of alphonse king of castile the quarrel was soon settled and a marriage decided upon between prince edward henry's elder brother and princess eleanor daughter of alphonse but the king kept this happy consummation secret in order to obtain fresh subsidies from his english subjects under the pretense of continuing the war he only came back to england when he found himself as usual reduced to beggary the king's want of political foresight was as conspicuous as his prodigality and weakness the king of sicily frederick the second had been dead some time twelve fifty he had been excommunicated and pope innocent the fourth had claimed his kingdom as a fief of the holy see frederick's son prince conrad supported generally by the people was resisting this pretension by force of arms and the pope was casting about for a foreign prince who might be disposed to take up the quarrel he offered the crown of sicily to richard brother of the king of england whose immense fortune derived from the cornish mines rendered him more powerful even than king henry himself but he refused the tempting bait although he was quite ready to be seduced some months later by the hope of gaining possession of the empire the pope then offered the kingdom of sicily to the king of england for his second son edmund and the monarch joyfully accepted the offer without troubling himself about the demands of his subjects or the state of his finances the pope was borrowing of the lombards and the venetians and raising troops in his name but the holy see was a hard and urgent creditor innocent the fourth soon demanded back the money which he had spent and ordered the english clergy to lend the necessary funds to the king the clergy refused the king levied enormous taxes on the abbeys and churches the legate sent to england to recover the money encountered on all sides the most violent opposition 
I would rather die than pay so much money, said the Bishop of Worcester. The King and the Pope are stronger than we, said the Bishop of London, but if I am deprived of my mitre, I shall be able to wear a helmet. The legate returned, convinced that a storm was about to burst over England. End of chapter 9, part 1